Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamlet and Michael Sidgwick, here to look back on everything that happened on Saturday Night Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also Raw, SmackDown, NXT, pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a round of the week complete with a bloody good quiz, of course, on WrestleCulture. As I said, though, joined by Hamlet and Sidgwick to review AEW Dynamite and a return to form, Michael Sidgwick. Uh, yes, very much so. Um, the key word that I have got to analyse this episode was intelligent. And I was really glad it was more intelligent than Blow Away Great. I mean, the main event was Blow Away Great, but I just thought this is an intelligent, clever show that I was delighted with rather than I was more delighted by sort of marveling at how well it was done rather than being overwhelmed with how brilliant it was throughout the two hours. There was a segment with Christian and Jungle Boy that was just unbelievable that reminded me, yes, this company can do the expert long-term booking things and they can do the deft dovetailing stuff very well because I hadn't got a lick of that for the past three weeks. Headlined by an absolutely awesome match, little wrinkles to the booking patterns that was just an admiration of and yeah it was intelligent as well because they're still saving stuff you can tell this they've got four um bannered shows upcoming so you got some matches that were more functional than great and you got the expanse of the roster used just to have a little banger with a purpose there's a little bit of an nxt element of that but we'll get into it It was just a very clever show by a very good wrestling company, and I was just delighted to have that feeling again. Yeah, that was really good. Um, Really, like, a welcome break from the sort of, like, almost boring uh, Friday shows that have been like this. The way this, like, zipped along 
reminded me of the dynamites of old more than anything. There was a pace and an energy. And I think some of that was obviously brought by like a really great live crowd, an excellent live crowd on uh, uh, Saturday night. I don't know that they've all been perfect when they have been there. They've like not necessarily conjured the magic of double or nothing, but this crowd were great um, in the mood for it. And it just, I don't know, it contributed to just a far more watchable, as Cedric probably like was alluding to there, it was like far from perfect peak AEW or anything, but it was just such a more watchable broadcast as a mm. wrestling show that it's been for the last few weeks. And that was just like a bit of a breath of fresh air ahead of the Wednesday move. Yeah, the crowd was awesome for this show. And it started off with the uh, with the opening match. It was uh, Hangman Page versus Powerhouse Hobbs. Oh, things are just getting worse and worse for Team Taz, aren't they? Uh, the story of this match, uh, Hobbs targeting Page's arm early on, uh, fighting him out on the floor, wrapping around the barricade, kicking it, slamming it into absolutely everything, uh, then sending Hangman Page into the corner post. Why is it? That's got to be something wrong with me. That I was like, oh. God, that blood looks good in Hangman Page's hair. <laughs> I really was concerned by how visceral a response I got to that. Uh, but anyway, Hangman Page fights back. He hits a top rope uh, moonsault to a standing powerhouse Hobbs. I thought that looked awesome. Uh, Hobbs, though, fight backs out, fights back out of the dead eye. It's a running crossbody, and out comes the absolute peace that is Ricky Starks and, and Hook. Uh, they bring the FTW Championship. Uh, Powerhouse Hobbs, unlike Brian Cage, more than happy to use it. But before he can get his hands on it, out comes Brian Cage. Uh, he sends him packing. He attacks uh, Ricky Starks, who legs it to the back, losing his jacket in the process. Um, there's a distraction, but Hobbs isn't an idiot. So he fights back. He nails uh, Hangman Page with a great spine buster for a near fall. Uh, in, the, in the end, though, Page avoids a running crossbody. German suplex, dead eye. One, two, three. All good stuff this siege. Yeah, very intelligent. Like, very, very intelligent. What they did here by working over the arm was they worked around something that Hangman Page had already done against an absolute beef monster of an opponent. Um, in the Wardlow match, he was so given that when he launched the buckshot lariat, they did that awesome spot that you can only do against just absolute colossuses, colossi. <laughs> and that is, he's hit it, but... Wardlow was such a colossus that he just kind of withstood it. He didn't take a bump, much less the three. So he's like, Christ, I'm going to have to do that again. Look at this guy. And then you, in kind, go, Jesus Christ, look at that guy. Look at Wardlow. He's not even taking off his feet. They've already done that. Hangman Page is an incredible professional wrestler. He was just one of those intelligent guys currently working the scene. So instead of just doing that again, they decide, right, okay, well, let's just not do the buckshot. How do we not do that? Right, we'll work the arm. And that means that in doing so, you re-establish the dead eye as an actual finish. They are so goddamn great at quietly baking in these little moments that if you pay strict attention when Hangman Page wrestles Kenny Omega at All Out or whenever it happens. And again, the booking is so layered and complex that you don't know when that match is going to happen now because it's the number one contender. You're going to buy the dead eye as an earfall. Just absolutely... Stunning stuff. And the match itself, I, I don't want to say it dragged at various points, but it didn't have that totally immersive flow. You could probably put that down to Hobbs's lack of experience compared to a Brian Cage to use this very similar um, comparison exercise. But Hobbs has got this spot that I'm just in love with where he does the faint lariat where he makes them duck and then he just clocks them right in the back of the head. 
that spot is absolutely great. There was some really clever stuff in this match without it being totally blow away fantastic. As you pointed out, the contrast between Hobbs and Cage, just perfect physical storytelling. They do so much better storytelling through the moves in this physical storytelling medium than virtually anything WWE does when they have a mic in the hands of their performers. Um, Really, really lovely stuff. And again, it's just a captivating question. I didn't catch this because I'm an idiot for not paying attention at every single second. But Hangman Page's face, when he scored the three count, he looked like, oh, no. (laughs) The unread email again, he knows. He's too close to Kenny Omega for his own good. Um, for what this accomplished, just lovely, lovely episodic TV wrestling. And considering we don't really get to say this very often, Hamlet, uh, credit to the commentary here because Taz throughout this match was putting over, sort of like when you see those things about, like, oh, if you actually pay close attention, you can see the finish to this movie. Throughout it, he was talking about how they'd planned to counter the dead eye because they knew what effect it was going to have on Powerhouse Hobbs. Yeah, I love Taz as an ingredient to these Team Taz matches. It's a totally believable um, concept that they developed where you've got this Team Taz war room. It was the case at Double or Nothing when he was on commentary, whereas in reality, like that's a completely justifiable in kayfabe reason why Taz would be at ringside explaining the battle plan as it's happening in front of him when in reality he's there to add a bit of texture to the story of the stable collapsing. It's just like It's such neat presentation that you can like really appreciate every version of. Hangman Page's reaction at the finish, I thought was particularly inspired because I don't know if this is just an accident that they stumbled into or a detail. And I'd like to give them credit for this being a detail. For a guy that we are all desperately thirsty to be back in the main event fighting for the world title, Hangman Page has become the most awesome first match guy, (laughs) especially with crowds returning. Like he bursts out of that ramp, like bursts out of that entranceway when he sees the fans back, dropping F-bombs all over the shop because he's just so thrilled to have this back have the best version of the things he loves the most back. And he gets this response given back to him. And it's so um, in sync between fans and wrestler that he's just, he seems at his happiest there. But the reality is we want him at the other end of the card. And him having to come to that conclusion at the same time is quite brilliant. Again, I don't know how much of an accident that is because a lot of wrestlers would obviously presumably love the opportunity to be first out. You know, it's a, it's a real honour and it's a real sort of showing of trust from the company as we emerge out of the pandemic. I just think that's like a really unique added detail of how many times we've seen Hangman Page come on first in one of these bangers when ultimately we know he's got to be at the other end of the card. He, um, I don't think Page gets enough credit at this point um, for just what a like a shape shifter of a pro wrestler he is. I loved the opener with Omega. Uh, full gear, Cedric? Yes. Like, incredible. Like, I compared it to Heart and Heart versus Heart at WrestleMania 10, not just for the quality of the match, but for the detail in the storyline. It felt like there was a brotherly quality to like one that was more than keen to have the fight and one that didn't really want to have it, and how they kind of like sewed that into the, the match itself. Um, but in that match, Hangman Page felt like he could be a Bret Hart figure in a technical classic. Here, he sort of, it was like he was wearing lifts in his boots so he could have a hoss fight. Mm. Much the same against Brian Cage. He, the way he can morph as per the needs of the match is quite incredible. And it, like, especially coming out of a time where the wrestlers have had less reps than ever. And I don't think that's something I saw in his New Japan or Ring of Honor runs. So I've got to credit how he's developed his overall game in AEW to, to be able to adjust to all those different styles. Love this. Completely set the tone for the whole evening. This. Mm. One more thing. Sorry, Wilborn. I just have to interject. I love that take on the opening match. And even if it isn't quite like what they're going for, I'd like to think it is. But even if it isn't, it's still just such a savvy 
savvy endeavour to get Hangman Page in front of that crowd when they're bursting at the seams for excitement. Strategically, long-term, it's fantastic because what you're doing is you're presenting Hangman Page as the most over guy. And he kind of is, mm. or he's there or thereabouts, but it's kind of, it feels unmistakable. Yes, he's got competition from Jungle Boy and Darby Allen as the most revered over baby faces in this company. But in that moment, in those moments, he feels unmistakably like their guy. And it's all by putting him out there first. We saw Sammy Guevara getting attacked by Sean Spears. He twatted him with a chair when he arrived at the building. Uh, part of this theme of the pinnacle ambushing the inner circle. More on that later. And uh, then we got a promo from the Young Bucks and sort of Brandon Cutler. Brandon Cutler kept trying to, 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 to get a word in and they were just saying, just please shut up. Aside from the good line he had about trying to make a gourmet meal uh, from leftovers, effectively. They're boasting. They're being arrogant bastards. They're talking about being the longest reigning tag champs in AW history. Uh, they go through all the people they've beaten. Next up is Eddie Kingston and Pente El Zero Miedo. Uh, they're not even real tag wrestlers. They've just sort of been thrown together. And uh, the books are going to beat them because, Michael Hamlet, they are EVPs, extremely violent people. And then I think Nick Jackson did a chicken impression. <laughs> I've had a request. Sorry, just to break in. I know it's Hamlet to go and I will hand it over to him imminently. Someone had a request that I make the noise. <laughs> so there you go. The second half of that sounded like that bit in Family Guy where Peter Griffin tries to name every 50 states with a scream. <laughs> <laughs> this was, this is so brilliant. Um, two, two burns on FTR here. Longest reigning uh, AEW tag champions and them stealing the kind of bit about they're not even a real tag team as like the great heel excuse like they're these are the men in their own bio like luxuriate the fact that they took the tag rope away and now all of a sudden they're the tag team traditionalists like such a great detail um like perfect for people that know that that match permanently exists in the background of AEW one day that'll be like a best of 57 series it just it has to sort of be there forever the young books and FTR and all the things that bring them together and all the things that rip them apart and just nice, just nice setup for Kingston and Penta. Um, they've played fast and loose with Penta's character, in my opinion. He's been one week a heel single star for a throwaway match against Cody. He's been the next minute kind of like almost like Phoenix's surrogate in a Phoenix and Pack surrogate with, with Eddie Kingston. It's all a bit weird in how they've like used the Penta character, but they've done an effective enough job of establishing them as like, like earnest tryhards in the vein of Kingston and Moxley. So they've, they're almost getting the Kingston and Moxley rematch without having to use John Moxley. And I think that's quite inspired. It's actually a third wrinkle to the Young Bucks FTR indirect stuff that they love doing, that they've been doing for about five years at this point. Dax and Cash are working this thing on Twitter where they say MVPs, not EVPs. Tacit implication that, you know, that's why. And it's a bit meta and it works in the Twitter sphere. But in response, and again, it's just this lovely little detail that if you're a total deranged mark like myself and that Michael Hamflit, if you're paying attention, you are just getting this enriched, even in the quietest corners every step of the way. Because MVPs, not EVPs, becomes, oh yeah, we are EVPs. Extremely violent people. It's like <laughs> their version of violence isn't going home with a steel chair. It's been at little bastards with ice spray in the eyes. <laughs> Right, it's just all tremendous stuff. Um, Nick Jackson's voice was great. It's the kind of thing that you do when you're completely in the zone of how to present your character and you're so brave that you can just get any old crap over, any old inexplicable, nonsensical stuff over. And a bird noise got over with me. 
more so than the content, which was good. I loved Matt Jackson's little sort of rapid fire asides just to bury everyone in the sound of a hiccup. But I just got an energy from them that they are absolutely locked in, dialed in, in the zone of this act. And it was amazing to see. The match will be very good next week. I am looking, starting to look ahead at right, okay, this various pieces of this sort of loose alliance, it feels like they're just sort of randomizing numbers to put it together to get some nice matches. I am looking for a bit of a longer term direction ahead of all out, but there's there's time. Mm. Great back and forth follow this. Uh, it was Tully Blanchard and Conan uh picking up FTR and Brand Powerful, of course. Tully, wonderful mind games and all this. Tully said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll let you speak first, Conan. You know what? And Conan said, well, I'm not intimidated by mind games. Neither will Santana or Ortiz be. Uh, talked about the varying, let's say, upbringings of FTR and Santana and Ortiz, cow tipping compared to the mean streets of New York City, basically. Uh, referenced Tully Blanchard having to learn to speak Spanish and, and, and all that. That was cutting. Um, he said, Tully, you're a mentor. I'm a father, though. Tully comes back saying, you don't know who you're dealing with, effectively. And you're just going to make one big entrance on Dynamite before FTR ends the game. Kind of says, well, I thought you'd say that, which is why I decided to bring some backup. He brings out Santana and Ortiz and Tully, though, he's got the ace up his sleeve and reveals, yeah, it's not Santana and Ortiz because, yes, they have the uh, the bandanas covering the bottom half of their face, but they're also, for some reason, wearing masks on the top half. And Tully points to the big screen where it reveals Santana and Ortiz have been laid out backstage. Of course, it's Dax and Cash. They reveal themselves. They attack Conan and they hit the spike pile driver goodness me michael sidgwick what was this i really liked some of it and some of it fell a little bit flat for me in terms of how unconvincing it was my broad take is that i would much rather this i loved the ambush theme and how it played out across three separate segments or two separate segments on the night it was a bit inelegant because it reflected poorly on conan that he couldn't see what literally everybody else in the crowd and the room saw like they did Remember when um, for about five seconds you had that all in, you had that awesome slow dawn of a realisation that, oh Christ, that's Jericho because Penta and Chris Jericho at the time almost shared the same body until you realised, mm-hmm. oh no, this is great. This is super convincing. We've actually hit this in plain sight. I absolutely did not get that from FTR and Santana and Ortiz. Um, but at the same time, Tully Blanchard saying the word boom over and over again just absolutely popped me daft. Like he looked like he loved being a dickhead. And that's heels and that absolute prime for me. I love it. Just be a dickhead, an outward dickhead. Love being a dickhead. That's what you should all be. Um, Conan's promo was great. Just enough inside to not feel like edgy on purpose. I do like the fact that FTR are so great at showing ass. Like, they are the best at it in the ring when they finally get what's coming to them after those minutes and minutes of double teams. They are fantastic at feeding and showing ass. Um, so I love that they're doing this in the broader context of the storyline, where they're, like, the real good men and, like, cash. Dax is all over Twitter drinking his um, straight tequila. But, like, the fact that they aspire to be men of an old-fashioned stripe. It's like, well, actually, that's bollocks. You've lived a very comfort lifestyle and this is why I really like that. Um, but yeah, they're not, they didn't look remotely like Santana, Santana and Ortiz, <laughs> not remotely, but you know what I mean? Like they're very good at like chinning old people with actual real significant health problems. 
and I'm not mm. telling people how to police their bodies. God, God forbid you appear to be one of the safety police. I don't think for a TV match they are going to legitimately try and hurt someone. Like you would have been cleared to do this. But, you know, they are clever enough to grasp that their audience is clever and dedicated and they know that Conan's had some health problems. So it was really quite shocking to see him take that pile driver and he bumped for it tremendously. Mm. So there's more to love than to dislike about this. And again, it's just, I like the return to the gamesmanship at the core of this rivalry, not just this sports entertainment theatre that is at times descended into. Yeah, this like for me was just reflective of a better week overall for the the pinnacle and uh, inner circle stuff. The I wish they'd had a different idea. Ultimately, it did. I Conan's promo was fantastic. I thought um, nailed everything he had to. Did it in that way that he was going to make Tully Blanchard regret patronising him by letting him go first. You know, like kind of like as if they'd made some sort of gentleman's agreement beforehand. Like you are going to regret this. I'm going to ether you. Like perfect. And then, like, I just wish the maybe Conan like shouts for Proud and Powerful to back him up as they'd planned to do, and then Tully directs it to the screen. And then, while Conan's staring on, looking at his boys getting beaten up, turns out that's a pre-tip and then FTR strike or something like that. Because yeah, it did sort of take you out of it a little bit that you were that you were sort of asked to believe that Conan thought it was them when nobody else in Daly's place or you watching at home did. So just a little bit like you, you got to try that stuff sometimes and maybe sometimes it'd work out and sometimes it doesn't. And this one didn't. Um, but I really liked it. I love um, it's it's I feel like there's one other person that I'm forgetting. But in Conan and Dean Malenko, they're kind of adding a, a unique quality to the inner circle as once like the bad lads running roughshod over all elite wrestling. They become like friends of the wrestling elderly, which is quite a, a unique place. I mean, four of them are in the case of Chris Jericho, but I didn't expect them to sort of exist in that space in AEW. And that sort of puts over the pinnacle as well as the new threat in a way they haven't felt. Threat is what you've needed from the pinnacle. Mm. This was heat. This was really, really good heat. Some of the best heat the pinnacle's ever had probably in this beatdown. Um, just like the one last week with Dean Malenko. Um, so maybe the answer was just finding old guys to befriend the inner circle that the pinnacle could beat up rather than the pinnacle beating up the inner circle. Maybe that was one of the answers all along because they just didn't want to commit to Proud and Powerful and Sammy Guevara and, yeah, probably Chris Jericho. They didn't want to commit to them taking definitive beatings, but they've got no problem having the old guys take them instead. I love as well, sorry, Wilborn, I know I'm interrupting quite a bit, but, my God, I just love deepening the idea that you remain babyfaces. It's not just this one and done thing where it's like, right, okay, well, Chris Jericho said sorry to the crowd and they are fighting heels. That makes them baby faces. You're just deepening the idea that these guys are in fact baby faces virtually every single week. Like it's just, this is what happens when you expand the universe of characters. Um, very effective for me. A thrilling contest next. Dante Martin versus Matt Seidel. Although, have a listen to your thoughts on on earth that was with Vicky Guerrero coming out after Dante's maze entrance, doing the whole excuse me shtick. Andrade El Idolo comes out with her. Presumably they're going to reveal more about this big announcement that's been teased. And then Matt Seidel's entrance music hits. He walks out and they go, oh, never mind about that. And just go back inside. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um... There'll come a point, and we're not at that point yet, but there'll come a point where analysis will be less generous to stuff like this. I have to want to believe that this was uh, a kind of a method of expectation lowering, almost a feeling that you're supposed to feel as frustrated 
with Andrade that this is not everything as explosive as you thought it would be. And then they're going to leap out the ball. Like, it took them six to eight months to get that moment with Miro. So maybe they're just trying to expedite that process and do it in four weeks with Andrade. Like lower, 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 lower. Bang, something's awesome on the ways of Dynamite. You should never been worried about us all along. We've got this. We're under, we've got this under control. Don't do that too often. And like, that's me perhaps being generous. Some people won't be as generous and I can't fault them for that take either. This is quite annoying. I was just able to, maybe again, because I was in a good mood with the show, on a different Dynamite, I probably would have been a bit more pissy about something like that because I just thought it was... It, it just all felt weak and it felt a bit wet mm. and you can only like talk about how Andrade is the coolest guy in the room for so long without him showing it before you just stop believing it. So like, I've got faith that they'll, this is going to be great and they'll rectify this almost instantly, but I'd understand if people didn't. And it was put like cast a strange shadow on the start of this match. Cause this match was like stunning as well. This was everything we could have hoped. I'm sure everybody's seen the pictures doing the rounds over. Oh, social. Yeah. Like, I think it was um, Sean Rossap asking for a high-def sunset flip against the sunset, because all you can get is obviously the screenshot of how high uh, it gets up on the leap, which, again, is just one of them sort of things that if you can, why would you not do that? Like, I'm so glad he did that because it's it was getting gift and it was getting screenshotted, and it's just sort of, that's the sort of aerial stuff that is so simple, and yet it's going to be more of a conversation than another dive. So use that athleticism, use this, your spring-loaded feet to do a spot like that. And that was what these two took full advantage of. Matt Seidel is, I'd probably, he probably doesn't get enough credit for him being mm. such an ageless pro wrestler as well. Like when we talked about the Christian Evan Bourne match that turned out to have never happened, that was from an ECW 10 years ago, more, 11 years ago. You just wouldn't think so. Like the last decade has been extremely kind to the spring in Matt Seidel's like, step. And I just thought they just gave so much to this. Um, it, yeah, the Andrade stuff was strange, and I it like it didn't completely derail the momentum for this match, but like I did, it took a couple of minutes to be like, what the hell was that? And then mm. they kind of dragged, they kind of like they dragged you out, but they brought you back to life like a shot of espresso or something like that because the work was just too good to ignore. Yeah, it was a thrilling match. Uh, just so much great high flying stuff in there. Standing twisting moonsault from Side Al ahead of the commercial break. Later on, we got uh, Dante hitting a springboard moonsault for another two count. He got a few in there. Uh, they fight on the top rope. Side Al forced him down, hits a meteora. And then, yes, we got that amazing sunset flip for an earful. Uh, flipping stunner for another two count. Goes to the top, Dante Martin, but Side Al avoids the stomp. Dante Martin sort of tweaks his knee, but regardless, Matt Seidel nails him with that lightning spiral for the victory. Sid, what do you think of the match and what happened with Andrade before it? Well, the Andrade stuff was absolute piss weak NX sub sub NXT booking ramp stuff, right? I would have buried this had it taken place after the match where Andrade emerges on the ramp to stare down Matt Seidel, who in your head canon, he is picked as someone who, right, you just want a match. I want to win you the person who's just won a match because that'll get me up the rankings and that will be a booking manoeuvre that will, in theory, build the idea that Andrade is a winner because he's just won the winner. To do it midway through was odd. What's going on in the production truck? I hate anything that undermines the vibe that this is a recorded pro wrestling show as opposed to a scripted sports entertainment presentation. Why would the music guy cue him up? Why is, is anything like this happening? And the fact that he did it during Seidel's entrance ahead of a Matt Seidel match meant that I was left with the unmistakable impression, all right, Matt Seidel's going over. I don't do that. Don't. I was watching the whole thing, well, I know Seidel's going over because <laughs> we've already teased 
Seidel versus Andrade El Idolo. So I know what you're doing here. So that kind of pissed me off. Not only was it boring bitch stuff, but it's telegraphing boring bitch stuff. It's the sort of thing that detracts from the brilliant prospect of Seidel versus Andrade, which should be awesome. And what's more awesome about it is that it's very much an awesome first match for Andrade, who can do yet more awesome things afterwards. So that really annoyed me. Um, troubling, actually, because I was expecting a really good week for Andrade. And, you know, it just didn't come. As for the match itself, wonderful. A wonderful TV match worked sumptuously between a guy who's incredibly ambitious, who's got more of a spring of his step than Seidel, but Seidel is the wiser, older head. They told the story of that match beautifully. Like Dante Martin is so good that he's popped you with an 80s high spot. That's hmm. essentially what he's done, a sunset flip. And it's not just the background, but like, my God, what wonderfully anti-Thunderdome energy mm-hmm. that was. My goodness, it was beautiful. Um, but I suspect that would still get gift. We would still be talking about it in sort of markish tones on this podcast were it not for the backdrop because it looked incredible. He is in a modern scene that's just defined by how great these athletes are. He looks like an advanced version of that. Mm. What an incredible showing. And at the same time, there were still moments where it's like, right, he's getting that spot in. Don't think it makes that much context in the um, sense in the context of the match. It wasn't quite the seamless thrill ride. It was spotty at points, but like we probably said the same thing about Jungle Boy about two years ago. Mm. And look where he is now. Like it's wonderful to be on the ground floor of these incredibly young guys. And you have the reassurance that they are going to be protected in the best possible way throughout their careers. And you then invest in both the company and the performance that company promotes. Yeah. We're not about you know wishing your life away, but I guarantee we could do a podcast with the three of us sitting around and booking double or nothing 2026 with the map <laughs> performers that they've got on this show. And you wouldn't need to talk about anyone else jumping to, to AW or using the older guys, let's just say. Uh, you mentioned bitches there, talking of which, uh, Jay Cargill was talking about being that bitch, uh, promoting a T-shirt and uh, the 10% off code, that B, if you want to go and do that, by the way. Uh, and Mark Sterling couldn't rip a T-shirt, but Jay Cargill could. Before that, though, actually, I forgot to mention this. Uh, I know you like this, so I'll, I'll let you talk about it, Sige. Jungle Boy, uh, he's he's there to, you know, hype up the, the main event of the evening, him facing Kenny Omega for the world title. But Christine Cage is there and saying to him, basically, you shouldn't just be happy to be in this position of fighting for a world title. You should be pissed off about Omega basically saying, oh, isn't that nice? But you haven't got a bloody chance. He said, look, you've shot the world before, shot the fans before. Do it again tonight and win that world title. What do you reckon, Sige? I love this. I absolutely love this. Should have seen it coming the very second that they've stared down one another in the um, that closing stretch of the Double or Nothing Casino Battle Royal. I just love this because already they've just given me the fact that they're probably going to do Jungle Boy versus Christian Cage all out. And it's going to be absolutely a tremendous 15 minutes that gives Jungle Boy that win that he hasn't got yet. Yes, Dax Harwood like sort of got him on this journey and he de- deserves all the credit in the world for that. But this is something else. This is a single specialist who's essentially been brought in to do this. And this is the best possible version of what Christian Cage was brought in for. And for once, it didn't feel like that drab. All right, okay, this is really functional and it's going to be very productive. I'm not using words like, I feel brilliant about this or this is going to blow me away. 
like Christian Cage radiating creepy little bastard energy with his hand on his shoulder and his smug expression in the most low of low key negging. Just spectacular stuff. Like in that moment, I wanted to see Christian Cage tap out to the snare trap. His facials, it was such an understated performance, this. Not too understated, where you don't get what's happening. And maybe doing this, maybe inciting this slow burn now might not be the best idea, considering you kind of have to present Christian Cage as a babyface against Kenny Omega, who's probably going to get a babyface reaction in that match. Um, so then maybe sacrificing one thing for the ultimate aim, but what an ultimate aim this is. Creepy little bastard Christian with his... I know what you're doing, you bell-end face, against the guy you most want to see get the big win. It's yeah, immaculate I, book in this. I really, really appreciated that. And uh, just to jump up, just piggyback off that, Sage, like he's him saying, hey, you got there and shot the world again tonight. He's basically saying, hey, no one gave you a chance against me either. Uh, and then you can also follow this up as part of this, like you say, the undercurrent of an eventual, presumably, Christian Cage heel turn on, on Jungle Boy by when he faces Kenny Omega, Jungle Boy going up to him going, do you want any pointers? Like, I had a world title match a while back. I can help you out. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it, Hamlet? I think it's amazing. Um, there's a misconception, I think, that uh, people like us that watch this and go through it with a fine tooth comb want these companies to do what we think they should do, especially with WWE. Oh, they didn't do your fantasy bookings. That might be rubbish. It's mm. not that at all. What we want is to be surprised by things we didn't see coming. Um, Christian's picking up of that AEW title belt was one of those better and worse moments because, yes, you've like planted the seed that Christian wants Kenny Omega, but it gave the outward perception that this was very much a TNA-style debut. A guy's walked into the promotion with the words, outwork everyone in his T-shirt, and then has decided on night one, or night two, I guess, that he's not going to outwork anybody. He's just going to pick up the belt and eventually like sort of sow the seed for his title shot. He then went about outworking everybody and has found in Jungle Boy a guy that he can't outwork. The first guy, in fact, he can't outwork. And as you that detail that you've alluded to there, the idea that kind of like hair ruffling conversation they're having, when in reality, they've become bonded because Jungle Boy's hide, hide him over the top rope. Like what we predicted isn't what happened at all. What we predicted was a straightforward battle royal win for Christian so he could get his title shot that he basically signed the contract for when he picked up that belt. And they've instead gone a completely different direction. This Jungle Boy match was what folded Christian back into a story with Kenny Omega. Christian was nowhere near Kenny Omega. He's got there again because he's developed an alliance with Jungle Boy, which has already become condescending and has already shown you the Christian of old. Like, this sort of stuff, dating back to the moment Christian picked up the belt, is nothing that we would have predicted. And it's seeing it all play out at this stage is the stuff that you really live for, far more than any fantasy booking that you would have wanted to see play out. I love this. Like, this was maybe, you know, like, Outstanding main event, lots to like elsewhere in the show, but this might have been my favourite segment for how much it made me revisit what we've seen and think about what's still to come. That is at the core of why people really fell in love with this product to begin with, because it was happening all the time and there's been not enough of it lately. And this was like a key reminder that there's, there's still got loads in the chamber. Love this. Three more things, because I love it so much before we move on. Three <laughs> more things about this brilliant, brilliant storytelling before we go on. One, it's not just WWE's rampant awfulness that has screwed AEW before it could even get going in my opinion is this viable thing that casual lapsed whatever wrestling fans could like because the second that Christian Cage thing happened everyone was like oh Christ TNA is it oh, I'll have to live through a decade, decade and a half of them failing to do anything clever 
virtually. So, all right, okay, well, that's another thing that we can become dreadful of. We can, that the very specter of TNA being so bad induces dread in what AEW are trying, AEW are trying to do in much the same way WWE is. It cannot be overstated enough just how much WWE and now TNA being rampantly intelligence insulting rubbish for years and years and years are going to screw this company because people get dread at the prospect of it being anything like it. And people make their minds up when they do something similar without, you know, trust this company, God damn it, trust them. So that's one. Two, go out there and shock the world again, Jungle Boy. Hey, you never know, you fluky little bastard. Lightning might strike twice for you. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Stranger things have happened. You might get another fluke. Perfect. Because what he's doing is, oh, you shocked the world. That's a great thing. But you're subverting that. Shocking the world means, well, you shocked the world because it probably shouldn't have happened. You shouldn't have beat me. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. The third thing is so great is that they are both winners. They've both been built with winning streaks and in the rankings. And if Christian had done things quite there yet, he's undefeated. Apart from the Battle Royal, he's undefeated in singles competition. Two winners are feuding. It's the complete opposite of WWE, where losers feud all the time. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Before we go any further, though, this podcast is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you've got no idea where it's going? Well, it's all those subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it is endless. I'm guilty of this, so I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was more shocking than a wrestling betrayal. You see, Rocket Money is a personal 
finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. That's rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Moving on, uh, we got MJF Wardlow and Sean Spears chatting with Marvez, who I think MJF called Pig Sick, was it? Something like that. It was a brilliant put down, as always. Pig vomit. It was pig, pig vomit. vomit. Yeah. Pig vomit. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> what that sounds like as well. There's a subtext <laughs> to what everything MGF says. Watch what that sounds like. Sorry, Wilborn, go on. Uh, so he talked about attacking Jericho. He talked about having Spears, obviously, earlier on in the night, as I alluded to, attack Sammy Guevara ahead of their match on Wednesday. And he said, hey, guys, why don't get angry at me for attacking old Dean Malenko? He's got a bad heart. He's got Parkinson's. You should be thanking me, obviously, alluding to, to Chris Jericho, asking for thanks. Lovely little callback, that LTST, um, for, for, for giving giving what he needs. And that's an early retirement. And then in the midst of all this, as he's going to go on and berate more of the inner circle, in comes Jake Hager and Chris Jericho, the two remaining members of the inner circle who haven't been ambushed tonight. Huge brawl. They brawl out to the ring. Uh, obviously, eventually, the pinnacle take control because they've got the three-on-two numbers advantage. Uh, MJF is holding down Chris Jericho's arm, the arm that's already been injured on numerous occasions. Spears is oh, just... Oh, just warming himself up. The chairman's going to break this arm with the chair, but out comes Sammy Guevara. He takes out everyone. He's wailing the chair left and right, hits Wardlow, hits Spears. MJF bails up the ramp uh, and he grabs a microphone to say that AW chose the wrong guy uh, for the action figures, the posters, all that sort of thing. Talks about MJF's I'm better than you and you know it catchphrase. Well, next week he's going to show MJF he's the best ever and he knows it. Hamlet, your thoughts? Mostly good. Mostly good. Um, not like it, I think AW is a little bit better than the wrestlers like bitching about not getting the figures in the posters. I think that's like one of those times where stuff should stay on being the elite or is vlog more than on television. But I get why there's an overlap sometimes. It's a different company, but it's just I think it like takes out some of the gravitas. Um, I, I would have loved the pinnacle to have won the night because they were on course to and they like hatched a master plan to take them out. They, they've realised that they kept failing in a gang situation. So they're picking them off one by one by one. And they still lost the night and they've still not got the last word. However, small caveat to that, there was an element of the pop that Sammy Guevara received for making the save and how much he was received almost as the leader of this stable now. He's ready to replace Chris Jericho as the top guy in this group. Reminded me of how I didn't really like 2019 Babyface Cody, but every single person in those buildings did. So just because I don't like it, I can't be like, well, look, people are going absolutely nuts for this guy. So they're not making a wrong call just because I don't like something. So I would have loved the pinnacle. I think this was the night for the pinnacle to get the last word, even though I think MJF's going to beat Guevara. So they'll probably get it there. I just thought like, hatch a plan and see it through for once. Have this plan work. Be the pinnacle that you say you are. Um, but like crowd did go nuts for the Guevara thing. Mm. So I judged like strictly in and of itself. It was a great bit of telly. I admired so much the elegance of this show long hook and how it dovetailed across itself. Absolutely wonderful actual pro wrestling storytelling. As again, just a wonderful contrast to a lot of the sports entertainment e stuff uh, we've been watching or subjected to of late. You justify the comeback by how over your baby face is. That's absolutely fine. And again, as much as it was irritating not to see 
you want to see the pinnacle. Again, harken back to what I was saying earlier with Tully. Like, I understand that the reason why you give the heel heat is to have the baby face withstand it and fight back. Like, it's all this big cause and effect deal. But I'd like to see MGF have like a eaten grin on his face at the end of a segment. I'd like to see them all collectively be the very thing that they claim to be. That's the pinnacle. Um, but I think you'll get that next week. Yeah. So I reserve judgment. This is a long-term game of which we were wonderfully reminded um, throughout this evening. I didn't, there's one element I didn't like, but for a different reason to Hamlet, and that is when you do a lot of indulgent, repetitive stuff for the sake of it, and this is not just limited to the scope of the Pinnacle versus Inner Circle feud, but this is how violent a landscape AEW has become in general. When you are undisciplined, indisciplined, sorry, with your storytelling mechanisms to the point of fatigue, exhaustion, repetition, something like a chair shot has long since lost its power in this company. So this, and I know he came back from it an hour later, but they were still selling the idea, again, with the idea that when MGF beats Sam Guevara, what would it have been like if he didn't have that chair shot? But at the same time, I've seen so many chair shots and it hasn't been curated well enough, the chair shot, that some of it was a bit hollow for me. But again, just the elegance of the storytelling made up for the, the logic gaps, but the precedent's kind of long since been established for that now. Uh, on a personal note, I don't usually really go in for religious stuff in my wrestling. But Miro is a terrifying prospect anyway. And then just, I don't know, the, the image of him topless on a chair with his, with his you know, uh, religious iconography in his hands and thanking God, not only for his power, but for his flexible life. Uh, it's just, oh, my brain can't really comprehend it. He talks about Brian Pillman Jr. Um, staying st- said, standing between the righteous man and his path is like standing between the cleaver and its meat. Uh, he's going to find out next week why Miro is God's favourite champion. He says the bravest thing he's ever done in his life was thinking about attacking Miro. The stupidest thing was actually doing it. I do not want to cross Miro, Sidge. He's awesome. I tweeted this, so the mega fans will forgive me for regurgitating the take. But not only is Miro an exponentially better promo than he is in WWE, he could write... If I had to say, right, okay, there's a big Hollywood studio that's saying, right, someone from wrestling, um, you have to pick, gun to your head, someone from wrestling to write a screenplay. And if it doesn't, if it isn't good, then you're dead. Like, I would pick Miro over literally any of the so-called professional screenwriters under WWE's employ. His way with the threat is so incredible. His one-liners are so incredible that you get just almost the platonic ideal of what a heel professional wrestler should be. A very dangerous, witty man who just plants these, like, threats in your mind. They're so vivid. And they're so badass and they're so memorable. Like, you just completely take them seriously. This religious stuff that he's doing, I think, is absolutely incredible. It paints the picture of a man who's completely mad with power, who's completely entitled to do what he wants. I don't know if this is quite what he's going for, but there is nothing more terrifying in the world than a Christian in America. That just isn't. They believe (laughs) that God imbues them with the powers to do absolutely horrendous things. It's fine. Bible says I can do this. Like they are the people who are the worst and most morally repugnant people in America where Christianity masks 
so that they can get away with doing bad things. Well, goddamn Christian, you can't say that about me. Well, well, I don't know if he's quite channeling that, but I get the same energy of you're an arsehole. You're not allowed to be an arsehole because you've read a book somewhere that says that you you automatically aren't and will be forgiven. I'd, it's that old adage as well of the heel believing or being delusional enough to believe that what they're doing is right. And gaslighting Brian Hillman Jr. for why would you want to stop me protecting a woman when like about a month ago he would have scooped up Penelope Ford and Kip Sabian and launched them into the sky at the same time <laughs> so the idea that he is sort of you know not convinced himself but he's telling the world that this is why I was doing the things I was doing that you would uh, be stupid enough to come between the cleaver and the meat I think is another one of those lines Cedric is referring to he's always got about three per promo just just inspired he's on Rusev was great Rusev wrote a tank. This is the run of this man's career currently. I, just, I want them to, obviously not next week, but that promo he cut, that never made its TV, did it? Where he's cutting the promo and there's the, the storm going that on. That was just background. a Twitter. That was epic. More of that sort of thing. I don't know whether he timed it with the thunder or not, but it just, oh, it was epic in terms of, yeah, just the way it really came across. Uh, and speaking of men I'm falling in love with, next up, Ethan Page was in action. He faced Bear Bronson. <laughs> he stomped on his foot and then just took the piss out of him after he'd just been slapping his slapping the taste out of Ethan Page's mouth. Uh, regardless, uh, Bronson fights back. It's a power slam. Uh, sends Page corner to corner, sends him out to the floor. It's a huge tope, but uh, as he's about to nail Page with that, Scorpio Sky, because they are... To the men of the year, not the man of the year, the men of the year. They look out for each other. He saves Page, pushes him out of the way, takes the bullet for him. In the midst of all that, uh, Ethan Page is there with, with Bear Boulder, who's ringside for, for his partner, and just just little bitch me. He touched me, pushed me, he gets the referee. That allows them to, to double-team a Bronson, take control as we go into the break. They come back. Uh, Bronson eventually fights out of the ego's edge, running splash in the corner. They're on the top rope. Page hits a superplex. Uh, Bronson comes back, black hole slam for a two-count. Uh, again, they go to the top rope. Sky tries to interfere. Boulder gets involved to chase Sky off. That takes the referee, and you've probably seen it if, you, if you've not even seen this match. The slow-mo low blow. Oh, one of the best low blows I've ever seen. It, it certainly came through the screen, if that makes any sense. Uh, Page, yeah, nails Bronson with the low blow, hits him with the ego's edge, gets the victory. Post-match, gets on the microphone, says, I'm not stupid. Everyone chants, yes, you are. He says... I know Dolby Addison's done with me. I'm going to be the nail in your coffin. He repeats that and says, why don't I just put you in one? And he challenges Darby Allen, Michael Sidgwick, to a coffin match July 7th. Loved all of this. Loved maybe as a strong word, but I just think it was really intelligent. What you've done here is that you've given Ethan Page a real platform to be a heel in a singles context with one eye towards, right, get this guy over properly in the singles realm before this match with Darby Allen. The best means of accomplishing this is give the Eagles edge to an absolute giant. Like the idea being, if you can do that to him, what kind of trouble is Darby Allen in for at Road Rager? I think the match is going ahead at. I just think he, after a long time, feels like he belongs, mm. feels like really finding the groove of his character, like his jacket stuff in the entrance. Love that. What an absolute pillock he looked, but in the best possible way. Um, this match was better than I had any right to be. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. I just enjoyed watching 
a heel just really nail the character at this point. And if you've got any reservations at all because you watched casket matches in the 1990s WWF, don't. Like, you're not going to see someone just get rolled slowly and tediously into an object. Like, you're going to see Darby Allen being teased, getting, like, plummeted into one from a terrifying height. There's going to be no sort of moving someone gradually across the canvas. Like, you're going to see an incredible update of that match. But I've got, it's going to be a deranged stunt show. It's going to be class. It's a very... TV-friendly modification on what we're doing in Evolve. I loved all of this. No love is the word. I really ter- enjoyed it. I'm terrified that Darby Allen's going to think, can you close a coffin lid with a coffin drop? And uh, the visuals of that is really worrying to me. Billboard stretching material law again. Yeah. I just, I do these things and go, yeah, I mean, it might kill you, but it's just an idea, just a thought. Um, yeah, terrifying prospect, this pamphlet. It's, I think you've nailed one of the biggest spots of the match. He does the coffin drop to Ethan Page in the coffin and the lid shuts on both of them so the referees can't call it and they have to open it back up and cry it back on again. Like, there's a sort of, like, the big heat spot. Um, I started picturing things like upright coffins in this match. It's not going to be just one cough, stationary coffin by the ring. It's going to be multiple ones lent up against corners. It's going to be one by the commentary desk on the stage. Like, several coffins in the same way that we line up ladders at TLC. I really like this as well. Um, the match went a bit too long for me, but I thought the... I found myself, this is not always a good thing, but it was here. I found myself really appreciating the process yet again. Um, I've not been particularly high on Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky as an act. They felt like a little bit more like designated jobbers, Darby Allen and Sting, than they did their equals ever in this story. But then I have to give credit to the dark arts working the magic yet again, because as soon as you see them against somebody they're definitively below, uh, sorry, above in the pecking order, such as Bear Country, they feel like bigger stars and something has clicked. And I think the same could probably be said for the likes of the acclaimed as well. They felt kind of like a one note joke. And then as soon as you see them against people they're going to beat or in positions on dark or dark elevation, you're like, oh, they've actually gotten over. They're, they're meaningful. They're worth something. And they're doing it again here with the men of the year. It's a, it's something, I don't know what it was this week, but something clicked in a way it hasn't before. And it's probably because Darby and Sting are still like, they're not really in their orbit but it was nice to see that they're comfortably above the, the AEW rank and file. So I welcome this as a presentation. If I thought the match dragged a little bit, but like, well, it was nice to see. Like, though I thought it went too long, it was nice to have an extended period of Ethan Page really feeling himself in his character. They both get what they're supposed to do now, and that's quite nice. I don't think when Ethan, when Ethan Page loses to Darby Allen, this act is going to be in much trouble. I think it'll probably be onwards and upwards for the men of the year once they're done with Darby. A couple of promos followed. Uh, started with Britt Baker and Reba Rebel um, talking about what they'd asked for if uh, Tony Khan owed them a favour. Uh, instead, of course, Vicky Guerrero has asked for a title match for uh, Nyla Rose. Uh, she said, Baker said she's the face of a new era, one that doesn't have time for fun and games and old chicks. Excuse me in advance for beating your ass. Uh, she's going to send Vicky home with a prescription signed DM. D and Guerrero subsequently responded saying that Nyla Rose is coming for Baker's title at Fight Fest Night 2 I believe uh, and next week uh, obviously they've got that tag match uh, Rose said Baker should watch out for the claws of the cougar. Anything you want to say about these promos Hamlet? Just that like I'm the IT guy in the office speaking to Tim as Tony Khan. Oh you've gone off the women again have you? Like bundling this segment next to the women's match in like what Sidric has pointed out was kind of like worst fears confirmed about the women's match existing as much to kind of put over the men's program. And this segment um, 
just again for me, like the promo was good. Britt Baker's an amazing talker. What else is new? Like, but it just the the story doesn't exist. So this felt fluffy and inessential. And Nyla Rose had more poise putting over Vicky Guerrero than Vicky Guerrero does putting over Nyla Rose. So I'm again finding myself in a situation of why people are existing on television and taking up valuable TV time and experience from others. So like I remain really deflated and disappointed with Britt Baker's first programme as champion and just bundling it in with the match straight afterwards between Statlander and the Bunny wasn't a great look for the division as a whole on what was otherwise a show that like fixed a lot of like niggling complaints from the last month. Close of the Cougar line was very good, but you're never going to get uh, over as someone who can do any damage in the ring. Like you can write the, you can come up with the greatest promo possible and it won't matter because Vicky Guerrero won a match on Dynamite and I hate it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the worst thing is, it's like if you're an AW fan or you enjoy watching this every single week, it's such a senseless decision. If in fact it still is, and I'm pretty sure it is at this point, to put Vicky Guerrero in the ring, that you are just situating a lightning rod for not exactly bad faith critique either. You're setting something up to fail and the failure of that will be honed in on. And you're in effect in these discourse wars, you're thrown in the towel. When you're not even anywhere close to defeat by putting Vicky, Vicky Guerrero in the spot. I just think it's uh, totally bizarre. I understand what they do. They use their expanded universe and lots of different players to preserve the appeal of the match. Vicky Guerrero doesn't belong in this. Mm. Uh, we got the Bunny and Chris Statliner next. Did I read Bunny suffered an injury off the back of this? I think she was shaken up, not necessarily injured. Glad to hear that. Yeah, I just randomly saw something on Twitter about this over the weekend and was immediately had my heart in my mouth for the entirety of this match. Uh, but the finish uh, saw Chris Statlander go up to the top, um, uh, go for some huge move, but uh, Bunny catches her, uh, hits a German suplex, thrust kick for a two count. In the midst of all this, Blade jumps up on the apron, distracts the official, slips uh, the Bunny, the brass knocks, but in comes Orange Cassidy, who's accompanied Chris Statlander to ringside. He does the old into the pocket gimmick. He leaves. Statlander hits the Big Bang Theory, gets the victory, uh, but post-match, Blade attacks Orange Cassidy, who's holding Chris Statlander's hand in the air. TH2 join the beatdown, and they hold him up as the Blade nails Orange Cassidy with the brass knocks. Sige, what do you make of it? If you're going to use women to build a storyline with men, like, right, so Orange Cassidy is going to have a match with the Blade, and then Matt Hardy, once Matt Hardy's done with Jungle Boy, is this it? Uh, done with Christian Cage. <sighs> Can't be asked with any of the directions spiraling out of this. Um, the fact that there are directions involving men spiraling out of this means that you can't really analyze the women's match because what's the point at this point? Um, and I think it's particularly great, if I'm being honest. And Orange Cassidy versus the Blade at Road Rager, leading to yet another feature Matt Hardy potential singles match. Down the road, down the the down the friggin' road. Oh God! Like Matt Hardy just sucks life out of the show when he sucks my interest out of it, and I don't know what the problem is. He's just not elite anymore. TH2 are in the HFO, aren't they? Like, yes, apparently. Yeah. But like, this is such lower card rubbish. Like this was. We have, I don't feel like this complaint's been too loud over the last few weeks, but again. Like in terms of the people that aren't getting television time or the roster that you'd rather see, 
the Hardy family office, like right at uh, like the bottom. Uh, in comparison to those, I'd rather see get matches or get angles or whatever. Just could not care less about them. And I do feel like they kind of rely on Orange Cassidy sometimes because he's so over that his popularity will elevate some of this material. And the reality is it does maybe once every three or four months in a massive match that you've built up for as like a dynamite main event in the weeks building up to it or in these little segments like this, it, it does nothing for the other acts. It just sort of saps away from Orange Cassidy's popularity. He was in the, like, like the title match, like the last pay-per-view cycle, and he feels nowhere near that level already. Uh, QT Marshall's getting interviewed by Tony Schiavone. He talks about Brock Anderson and uh, you know all the hype about him last week and getting wrestler of the week and then saying, why did he get all that? And I, I beat Cody. I'm just glad Cody's not here. He's probably off in Hollywood, hopefully getting cast in one of those stupid, geeky comic book movies. Let's hope it stays that way. Uh, and Brian Pillman Jr. responds to Miro. Talks about Miro's God complex. Uh, he's got a complex too. It's called fighting for everything he's ever had. On Wednesday, he's going to check Miro's ego and win the title. Yeah, confirmed for this Wednesday. Update your diaries. We're back to normal. Thank goodness for that. Miro versus Brian Pillman for the TNT Championship. Britt Baker and Rebel versus Nyla Rose and Vicky Guerrero. MGF Sammy Guevara and the Young Bucks versus Eddie Kingston and Penta El Zero Miedo. Uh, and yeah, confirmed for Road Rager on July 7th. Cody Rhodes versus QT Marshall shall in a strap match I want to talk though about just Alex Abrahantes's I don't know what he was wearing but I loved it uh, he's standing there with Penta El Zero Miedo and Eddie Kingston they cut a promo about the young books uh, about taking them out basically I uh, said so, uh, Kingston said it doesn't matter how much they get hit it's all about their ego the only way to hurt them is about taking those tag titles Penta speaks I just love Alex Abrahantes Penta says Eventually, uh, next week, we run over you. Zero miedo. Ominous, Hamlet. Yeah, um, kind of what I mentioned before, really. Cute. It's it's great, but it's cute that they've established surrogates for both Pack and Phoenix and Kingston and Moxley in the form of Kingston and Penta as a team that, like, they're hiding the fact they're effectively recycling Young Bucks matches and angles in plain sight, and they're doing a really, really good job of it. Like, I'm so, so ready for the Young Bucks as tag champions to expand beyond this same sort of like five or six people in the same one storyline ultimately. But it's a nice way to do it. It feels bigger than it actually is. Kingston and Pennant aren't winning the belts at all. The match probably won't be as good as the double or nothing match, but I will absolutely buy that everybody will try. And yeah, one more week of this is probably about as much as they can stretch it, but they got the right talker in Kingston to sell you on it as well. Um, Keaty Marshall, I quite liked, by the way, like two little meta nods in that promo. Like one, like complain about nepotism when a lot of people know why Keaty Marshall gets as much dynamite time as he gets. And the idea of like, where the hell's Cody probably on a film set? Like just, just nice. Like I, I like that, like they play with what people know about the, the real lives of the wrestlers sometimes because it's it's that kind of company to be able to get away with that. Um, yeah, both good, but just Kingston and Penta, like the match will be better than it has any right to be because they've kind of exploited virtually every other version of it at this point. QT Marshall deserves an enormous amount of credit because we're talking on this podcast of like all these different and brilliant heel characters like Miro, his promo, the Young Bucks, MJF and Tully. Like QT Marshall's found his own little way of doing it. Mm. He's such a miserable prick. <laughs> such a miserable, downbeat, petty little bastard of a man and he's great at it he's great i was thinking right how's this all going to work when we're back on the road how can measure the popularity of people 
and it's if you're from Miami or you're from Cedarwood, Texas, or wherever, like which card would you be most gutted that you got? And before this pro, I'd be like, ah, oh, QT Marshall live. Oh, he's good for dynamite and he's very underrated, blah, blah, blah. But oh God, QT Marshall live and you're not getting like Phoenix or something. Like, would you be annoyed? And not after this promo. Like, what a miserable arsehole. You have just <laughs> want to see get punched. Good, good. But he's good. Uh, and if you haven't seen it already, go on Twitter and check out Eddie Kingston's uh, post-Dynamite promo about the other show uh, or the other channel, whatever you want to call it. It's worth checking that out. Let's move on to the main event, a classic AEW world title match. Jungle Boy challenging Kenny Omega for the AEW world title. Incredible reaction for Jungle Boy as he came out, his family there watching at ringside uh, before the match even starts. Um, because Kenny Omega was joined by the Good Brothers. Uh, Jungle Boy obviously flanked by Luchasaurus and Marco Stunt. All of them ejected from ringside. Um, but Don Callis still talking a load of bollocks on commentary instead. They lock up initially. Omega forces him to the corner, parts his hair for him. Just, you know, just lets him know he's in control here. They brawl. Uh, Omega stops the dive, pulls Jungle Boy out of the ring, hoys him into the barricade, continues beating him down as we go into the uh, commercial break. Comes back. Uh, Jungle Boy eventually fights out. He hits a brain buster. Uh, Omega bails to the outside where Jungle Boy dies through the ropes a couple of times at him. Jungle Boy avoids a V-trigger, uh, flips out of a German, hits a thrust kick, but Omega fights back. V-trigger, snapdragon suplex, another V-trigger, goes up for the one-winged angel, but Jungle Boy counters it, uh, hits a reverse on Gamrana, sliding elbow smash to the back of Omega's head. That gets a two count, goes for a ripcord, uh, but Omega is quite used to that manoeuvre. Uh, he turns it into a V-trigger, powerbomb, another V-trigger in there, that gets a two count. Uh, Omega goes for yet another V-trigger, but Jungle Boy rolls through and locks on the snare trap submission. I could feel Michael Cedric leaping out of his chair with that. Good Brothers run down. Before they can get there, though, Jurassic Express and uh, the elite hunter Frankie Kazarian are there to deal with them. Omega does make it to the ropes. Um, he fights back. Uh, he gets another V-trigger. Goes to the one-winged angel. A fantastic near fall as Jungle Boy rolls out of it. And uh, yes, locks him into a, a great pinning predicament. So he kicks out. Jungle Boy locks on another snare trap, but Omega grabs Jungle Boy's hair, possibly even rakes the eyes. Don Callis, of course, trying to explain all of this away on commentary. Jungle Boy puts Omega up on the top rope. Omega slides out, drops him face first uh, onto the turnbuckle. V-trigger to the back of the head. Uh, another V-trigger in there, and then he hits the one-winged angel to get the victory. You felt the air go out of the building as he hit that one-winged angel. We all know where it was going after that. Post-match, Kenny Omega, because he's such a bastard, uh, can't just celebrate, picks up the title and wants to twat Jungle Boy with it. But Christian runs out to make the save, but then out come uh, Matt Hardy and Private Party. Christian counters uh, the uh, fights off all them but it's about to uh, counter the twist of fate as Hardy goes for it into a kill switch but out come the young bucks super kicks to him Hardy does hit the twist of fate and all the gits stand tall including Omega with the belt as we close the show oh a breathless main event Michael Sidgwick yeah there's loads to talk about here there's loads we're running low on time Christian Cage and Jungle Boy versus the young bucks at some point yes I absolutely love that. That would be incredible. I would love to see that. Before we get to the matches, a few other things I want to mention. The feigned interruptions, not only did it add to the dramatic spectacle and it made you feel like it was 
Jungle Boy's night because everything had been neutralized, all those good things. But it was another reassurance that they are listening and they realize you're getting tired. And maybe much of this was to arrive at this moment to create this atmosphere of total parity to inform every near fall of like, this is definitive, this is decisive, there's no chicanery going around. Everything, all set dressing for this was immaculate. I continue, and I don't think I've ever said this quite enough on these podcasts, I continue to be legitimately mesmerized by the commentary between Don Callis and the established three at that booth. It feels like there's a genuine mutual hatred there. <laughs> there isn't, I don't think. People hate Don Callis, like, so there might be. But they are magnificent at presenting this illusion. And even these tiny, what's that tiny details? Goddamn commentary. It's massively important. It just creates this, just deepens the idea that this is a real thing that you are watching. Huge stakes, lots of emotion charged behind it. So all of this presentation was wonderful. And it was all firmly reinforced by what an absolutely fantastic professional wrestling match this was. We were talking in the preview about how there was going to be one near four moment that was going to get you on the edge of the seat and in the moment convince you of the titles, which was imminent. We've got about five because mm-hmm. it's Kenny Omega. There's such a way with Kenny Omega at structuring and laying out a match. There's no one like him who can cast that spell of, right, something momentous is about to happen. All of this is brilliant. Just waves and waves and waves of drama. He's absolutely incredible at it. In terms of building matches, he's a goddamn architect. They never pick before the finish, ever. You're never not massively into it. You don't never don't get massively more into it the longer it goes on. But the man is an absolute genius at his craft, and they've struck the most obvious beat. Let's get Jungle Boy over and defeat. And they've mastered it. They never felt like he was going to get beat at one point. One of my favorite things in pro wrestling is, well, the crowds are back, so you can actually do this now, is the crowd power up the baby face. The support of the crowd means they don't tap out because they've got someone to fight for. And these are all earnest and cheesy things, but what a character to do them in and around in Jungle Boy. Just the little moments where he couldn't suplex Omega. He was... So it's not weaker is the word. He's weaker than Omega physically, so he couldn't get him up. But when, and this is so well positioned, when he heard the roar of the crowd and he was fired up by the roar of the crowd, he articulated, no, I can't do this. I do have the strength to do this with an absolutely awesome sheer drop brain buster. Like the move itself looked great, but the when to do the move was great. And the story of the match and how it altered into this, our price is going to do it with that sheer drop brain buster. Um, I would say I'll go four and a half on the match itself, but in terms of the presentation and the TV and the experience, it was five, four and a half for the work, just a five-star spectacle of this whole thing. Yeah, just like the quintessential perfect television main event, we get a lot of very good TV main events, a lot of good TV matches, but very few perfect ones, and this was perfect. Stables are awesome, as always, reason number whatever, uh, is because not only can you clear the decks once, but you can clear the decks twice. I love that device. So you like sweep them early and then you find another way to bring the Good Brothers and the Lee Hutton in to do it again because it like very clearly and not in a patronising way denotes that we're entering the final third of the match. When Kazarian chases off the Good Brothers, you know that we're heading home and if you weren't already at a fever pitch, time to get there now because there's nobody else that can possibly disrupt this. If Jungle Boy is going to do it, he's going to do it and he's not going to be disrupted by somebody else running in. Like, you know, like lingering threat of a Don Callis type figure notwithstanding. Um, absolutely love any time that they incorporate 
Um, this is Michael Sidgwick's take that kind of like Omega and Okada in 2017 at Wrestle Kingdom pretty much started all of this. And I love any time that like there's any kind of even like tiny callback to that, which is just somebody countering the moment danger. Ultimately, like that match expressed how important and vital it was. If you're going to beat a Kenny Omega or be the best wrestler in the world, you've got to figure out how to count that match. And Jungle Boy's um, reversal that he, I think he got the two count and then went back into the snare trap, didn't he? Yeah. Like absolutely love that because it's like he's a kid. You've been patronising him as a child, effectively, the parting of the hair, but he's done his homework like any sort of tenured professional would do over you, Kenny Omega. And then the near falls, we talked about near falls, um, and the one that got me the most wasn't Jungle Boy nearly winning the title. It was him not losing it. For Jungle Boy to kick out the Tiger Driving 98, only to be flattened with a one-winged angel. Like, the two count had me, thinking, like, I felt for a second, well, he's just kicked out from the one-winged angel. He hadn't. Omega had that left. And I love that they picked Tiger Driving Night here is the move to get that with. Omega's got a million things in his locker. Why did I think he's picked that? It's because Jungle Boy was literally a baby in 1998. He was born in 1997. <laughs> so that the whole story that all along, he was just seeing him as this like man-child figure that he wasn't to take seriously. Even built that into, this, into the story, didn't they? Like people saying, oh, why am I not building up Jungle Boy as a serious opponent? Why should I? It's Jungle Boy. And you get that right the way through to the move that he can't beat him with. So he has to go back to the one-winged angel. So even... Uh, if you're taking away just how beautifully it was presented as a television main event, they've gone to the trouble of thinking of the details that are worthy of pay-per-view. It's why Omega's the champion and why like they've got the best wrestler in the world as their top guy. Mm. And why, why a jungle boy is somebody that everybody always looks at in all of these big match situations to be one of the future people to take that spot. Like he never, ever misses in this spot as well, which is something that increasingly now, um, you know, wrestlers are given the opportunity to once every now and then. That it doesn't have to be this like perfect hit rate. But in these predicaments, Jungle Boy's hit rate is perfect. The hair stuff before we conclude was so fantastic because in the build he talks about his hair. At the start of the match, he does his hair for him, with the idea being like the hair represents like this youthful exuberance of Jungle Boy, his teen hunk status. And in the end. It says so much more about what an arsehole Kenny Omega is than how youthful or inexperienced Jungle Boy is because Jungle Boy is not those things. And to articulate that, Kenny Omega has to pull it because he would have been defeated otherwise. Just is the best. Kenny Omega remains the best wrestler in the world. And Don Callis has to say, you shouldn't have such long hair if you're in a title match as well as a trying to explain <laughs> away. Anything you want to say about the post-match Hamlet? Um... Kind of what I said before, like, I th- I'm not obviously a big fan of, like, more Christian than Matt Hardy, but we know what was happening here. They've found a way now to tie Christian to Kenny Omega in a way more palatable and kind of ingenious in comparison to just picking up the belt and staring at it. Um, this is far more logical and deserves credit for how they've arrived at this from a battle royal that we assumed Christian was going to win at a canter. Really, really impressive stuff. Yeah. Don't, care about Matt Hardy. Don't care about hey. Matt Hardy. Kenny Omega makes Matt Hardy versus Christian Cage interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I very much was like, oh, I don't care about all this Matt Hardy Christian Cage bollocks. But as you said, Sige, Christian Cage, you're going to work with us as young bucks. Yes, please. Mouthwatering that. But uh, yeah, a thrilling conclusion. Uh, brilliant main event to, to finish off this week's Dynamite. And thank God we're back to Wednesdays this week. Uh, let us know your thoughts on AW Dynamite, Saturday Night Dynamite on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. And what I say, you can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamlet at Michael Hamlet. Follow Michael Sidgwick at M. Sidgwick 
follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WWE, and make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcast from for daily wrestling podcasts. We'll have the Dynamite preview and review later on this week, and later on today we've got the preview for Monday Night Raw and the review of SmackDown to come. But this has been the AEW Dynamite review. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.